0: for hit play, not pause. And we are closing in on a half a million plays in our first year. And it's hard for me to thank you all enough, but I wanted to take a second and just say, thank you. And here is to another great year together. Okay. So this week we are talking bone health, which I'm sure everyone listening knows is super important during the menopause transition. Women can lose up to 20% of bone density during the first five to seven years following menopause, that's a big deal. And I think most of us know the basics. Our bones remodel throughout our lives, they break down, they build up. But at some point in early adulthood, we hit peak bone mass, and then our goal is to hang on to it as best we can. But I've heard a lot of conflicting information over the years about how best to do that. So I sat down with two doctors from the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Dr. Marcy Goolsby, who is the co-director of the Women's Sports Medicine Center there, and osteoporosis and metabolic bone disease specialist, Dr. Alana Sirota, who is also a certified menopause practitioner. I think my biggest takeaways here were that if you do get diagnosed with low bone density, and I know lots of you have because I've heard from you in my direct messages and on the social media channels and in the membership, and it can feel very blindsiding, it's not a slippery slope to osteoporosis. And if you do get diagnosed with osteoporosis, there is still plenty you can do. And the best thing you can do that's really important along with great nutrition. And we talk about all of that on the show is cross-train. Novel stimulation from all angles is your skeleton's best friend. So jump, walk, lift, all the stuff you do, but make sure that you do some different stuff if you're always running or always just doing one thing because it really helps your skeleton. Speaking of cross training, I do want to give just one quick thanks to our new sponsor PreveneX. I have been back to trail running again, getting up to like four or five miles on my rocky backyard trails. And I am not waking up with um, joint pain in my foot like I used to. And I can bend my toes and I'm I'm, I can't stop running my mouth about it because it makes me really happy. I've been living with this for a while and managing it pretty well, but this has made a huge difference and I'm super happy for their sponsorship. So thank you. Okay. Before we get to it, my little weekly reminder to come join us on our social media channels. We are at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. We have our private hit play, not pause Facebook channel where you can come in and join all sorts of conversations on pretty much everything. And if you want to deep dive into all things active menopausal living, we have our Feisty Menopause membership where we offer in depth materials, expert webinars, and sponsored discounts. You can learn all about that at FeistyMenopause.com. And you can still buy those Feisty Menopause Summit replays at FeistyMenopause.com too if you are interested. As always, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the kind messages, the hearts, the five-star ratings, the great reviews, sharing the show on your socials, which is honestly everything. It makes the show grow. It means the world to me. And I'm really, really appreciative. Okay. Enough of me. Let's have a quick word about those awesome sponsors and get on with the show. I have a pronouncement to make. I am wiggling my toes. Why am I making this seemingly ridiculous pronouncement? because it's been a long time since I could. Specifically, my right big toe. See, I have a bone spur at the base of that right toe. that is so big, my podiatrist said it looks like a party hat. And it has caused anything but a party in my foot. It has caused a lot of inflammation and stiffness, and there are times when it's been barely functional. I work through it. I have taken some anti-inflammatory supplements over the years that have made it mostly livable. Now, thanks to our new show sponsor, Provenex, it's way more than livable, it's functional. It doesn't wake me up throbbing at night, and I can actually wiggle the toe and lift it off the ground. My left hand that used to ache from where I broke it in a mountain bike crash 10 years ago, that doesn't ache anymore either. If I hadn't experienced this myself, I frankly wouldn't have believed it. And I was super skeptical when Prevenex approached me with their joint health product. But I stopped my other supplements, started this one, and within two weeks, the difference was remarkable. I honestly did not expect that. So I did a little research and the main ingredients, check out. First one is eggshell membrane, which contains collagen, glucosamine, conjointin, and hyaluronic acid, all of which have shown significant benefits in early research. And the other ingredient, Boswellia serrata extract, was found to even be more effective than glucosamine in some studies, according to examine.com. Prevenix has an array of other supplements, including Omega Pure Plus, which is an omega-3 fatty acid supplement, which is sourced from wild omega-rich fish and is totally free of heavy metals and mercury that can build up in your body. That's a big deal. They also have a vegan protein powder, which I know a lot of our listeners are keen to find, and that product, Nourify Plus, is low in sugar, high in branched chain amino acids, and contains probiotics and digestive enzymes that are super easy on the belly, which I really appreciate. So thanks to their sponsorship of this show, listeners can get 15% off their first-time purchase by using the code HITPLAY at checkout. Again, you can go to PrevineX.com. that's P-R-E. V-I-N-E-X and use the code HIT PLAY at checkout for 15% off your first purchase. And if you don't like it, the company offers a 100% money back guarantee on all of their products within 30 days, no question asked. That's how much they stand by their products. And I can tell you, with good reason, they work. Check it out. Go to Previnex.com, use the code HIT PLAY at checkout. 15% off your first purchase. Like many of you, I try to eat well, train well, take the supplements I need, and track my recovery, sleep, and progress. So imagine my surprise when I found out I had elevated blood sugar, high cortisol, out of whack lipids, and was borderline anemic. Yeah, all while I was racing well and feeling actually pretty great. Turns out, All of my training stress was taking a hidden toll. How did I find out? Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service that analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to provide you a personalized, science based, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is simpler, cheaper, and more convenient than traditional blood tests. And their blood tests also include biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from traditional blood tests like ferritin and vitamin D. My favorite part, they don't just give you data. They provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. And I've taken those actions myself and have been improving those markers and ultimately my health. So for a limited time, my friends at Inside Tracker are offering my listeners 25% off their entire store. So go to insidetracker.com slash feisty menopause to take advantage of that offer. Again, it's insidetracker.com slash feisty menopause. I can tell you it works. You know, I, I had actually, for reference, pulled a lot of the background out of a paper that I see that you co-authored uh, Marcy, which which was a gold mine of information. Uh, so mm-hmm. thank you. And I wanted to start with a uh, with a sobering stat from that: that 52% of adults older than 50 years have low bone mass at the femoral neck and lumbar spine, and 9% meet the diagnostic criteria for osteoporosis at one or both sites. So, you know, uh, we hear all these stats. You know, half people, all these stats. I'd love to put that in perspective. Like if everyone followed the best bone health habits in the world, would that number ever be zero? Or is that just like, is there some percentage of inevitability that we're talking about here?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start. And then Dr. Sirota is going to have plenty to chime into. I mean, the okay. answer is no, you know, and one of the things that, that you think about with bone health is there's things that are in our control and things that are not in our control and we can't control our genetics and that plays a huge role in people's risk of osteoporosis. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and follow up to that, you know, some bone loss over time is somewhat unavoidable. There's, you know, some aspects of it that you may be able to slow. Um, but it's, um, people often think of the important years for osteoporosis, Really being kind of postmenopausal later in life, but the truth is, is um, is a, there's sort of a, a saying that that osteoporosis is a childhood disease in the sense that your bone density you're really starting to build up from a very young age, and you sort of are on the incline until around 18 to 25, roughly. And there's where you sort of reach your max genetic potential. And then after that, there's a really slow decline over time. And then when when women go through menopause, there tends to be a bigger dip after that because of the changes in the hormones. But really you want to think about, um, you know, childhood and adolescence, which is a bigger part of my practice. When I see my younger patients, my adolescents, who come in with things that are going on that are not good for their bones, And trying to uh, nip that in the bud and address it early because I'm really trying to prevent the problems later in life.
0: I promise you that everybody in my audience is now just feels like maybe they're doomed. (laughs) You know, you, (laughs) you hear that. And, but, but I mean, you know, very seriously, especially since um, many people in my generation and the generation that's listening to this came up at a time when you could not be thin enough. Right. There was like dieting, dieting, dieting. They're also an athletic population. Many of them have been a in their lives. You have lost their periods. Um, so that is water long since under a big bridge, you know? Like, so what do you say to to women who are 40, 50, 60 who who can't go back to 18 and, and and you know, slap their younger selves around a bit and say, like, you need to take better care of your bones.
2: Well, I think we all wish we could go back in time. Certainly I was of the generation where we sat around with our, you know, folders with, with um, tinfoil on them to suntan, <laughs> yes. um, right? So we've all, you know, our sins are writ on our skeleton and our skin. Um, but it is not a, a case of being doomed. Even if osteoporotic, it is a manageable condition. Um, if you take it seriously, um, we have good treatments. Uh, We have sometimes treatments that, you know, they can reside in the skeleton so that there are times when you are still monitored, but not treated. So I always tell people like, if you're going to have a a condition, a chronic condition, it's a nice one to have. Um, You know, if you have hypertension or diabetes or high cholesterol, those are rarely controlled with a single agent. And those are sort of a, you know, a bigger, um, you know, a, a bigger nut and burden on your life in terms of the changes that need to be made. Um, whereas, you know, if you're already an exercising, healthy, you know, healthy lifestyle, healthy diet person, um, you know, I have many patients that come into to see me and all I need to do is treat their osteoporosis. I don't have to sort of rebuild their their lifestyle. Um, certainly if there's uh, people who are continuing to sort of under-eat, under fuel, that's a different conversation. Um, but you know, in, for the most part, my, my patients sort of live clean and healthy lives, um, but they have low bone density.
1: Yeah. To echo that, I always tell people when they're in the office and just try to like, cause there's a lot of guilt, right? We're, we're naturally very guilty people, or at least, at least I am. And, and so, you know, I always try to say like, You can't go back in time and that's okay. So all we can do right now, like what's in our control now, right? And that's making sure that, you know, for, for my athletes, for example, that we're in good balance with our nutrition and your exercise, that we're not doing anything that could be causing any ongoing negative impacts on your bones. And let's focus on the things that we can do, the things that are positively helpful for your bones.
0: Excellent. And I, I want to dive into all three of those pieces in, in this interview, you know, like the pharmaceutical piece perhaps, and the nutrition lifestyle training, I I'd like to just step one step back and talk about how sex hormones impact bone turnover. Just give like a little piece of like, what, like, you know, it, it's easy to think of bones as this sort of static thing, but they're anything but right. So like about bone turnover, turnover and how our sex hormones impact that as women.
2: So that, you know, any time that there's a shift in our hormones, so estrogen is really the the where it's at in terms of uh maintaining our bone density. Estrogen is what uh helps to fuse uh, the epiphyses. Um it's the aromatase, uh, aromatization of estrogen of testosterone to estrogen um, that has the that is clearly the the impact in men uh when it comes to bone density. And so at times when there are hormonal shifts um you know whether that's uh during lactation when we're nursing that's basically you know mimicking um menopause uh in terms of your estrogen level there's you know significant bone loss and at the time of menopause uh, you know as the, the ovaries go offline and there's less estrogen that's what I call like the black diamond of bone loss there's that very rapid bone loss in those first five years after the, the last menstrual period, and then it goes to like a blue or a green thereafter. Um, so that that's you know the the bone is rich in estrogen receptors, as are many other organ systems. Um, so that's that's the role. And if, if there's any time in your life where because of nutritional deficiencies, overtraining, what have you, uh, so too the estrogen will will be lower, and that will have a negative impact on the skeleton, whether that's in development or in maintenance time.
0: Can we also talk a little bit, you know, the, I did a podcast with uh, Dr. Abram Blooming who wrote Estrogen Matters. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. And <laughs> <I> he, <know. laughs> You are, okay. He talked about the elasticity of bone and the importance of estrogen. Um, so there's a little bend and not the, uh, you know, fragility, if you will. Like, can you speak to that a little bit? Is there, like, if that was the first time I'd heard it and it made a ton of sense, you know, intuitively to me. Um, is there a measure of that? Is, is that something that we can also work on?
1: Um, I'll, 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 I'll kind of take the first half and then and let you chime in, Amy, but um, there's, yeah, there's a lot more to, to bones than some of the simple objective things that we can measure easily, I should say. So, you know, we have, you know, kind of our, our, our gold standard for osteoporosis screening is a DEXA, which is essentially similar to like an X ray that you would get. Um, you know, there are, there are other tools that might be able to give us a little bit more detail about the geography of the bones a little bit better. Um, uh, and there's, you know, it, when we do research and animal studies, for example, when they're looking at medications and things that are, you know, helpful for fracture prevention they can do things like resistance of load to fracture, right? That's obviously something we're probably not gonna do in our human subjects when we research things. But, you know, there's a lot of mechanical or biomechanical properties to the bone that are important for preventing fractures. Um, And there's, I often describe estrogen as really part of a symphony. There's a bunch of hormones that are involved in kind of our bone um, processes. And and sort of whenever that symphony one instrument is off the whole thing can sort of sound funky. The same thing can happen in the in the body where if something is off it can impact other things, other the sound of other instruments in this analogy, and and that can have a negative impact on the bones as well.
2: So what we know from studies, fascinating studies which are actually done, uh, I can't remember, gentlemen in North Carolina looking at which is a selective estrogen receptor modulator. So not estrogen itself, but it, in the bone, it works on uh, the estrogen receptors. And what he showed is that, you know, bone is made of ribbons of collagen and the raloxifene moves water moieties into the collagen. So it made the bones bouncy. So you don't, when you're on hormone therapy or, relo- or a selective estrogen receptor modulator, like raloxifene, which is brand name of Vista. Uh, or tamoxifen postmenopause, you don't necessarily see big changes in the bone density but you do we know that there's fracture protection and that is likely because the bone is sort of more you know bouncy resistant uh to uh to fractures you know i, I sort of i jokingly say it's like the botox of the bones um you know it just sort of keeps things al- and although i suppose the better analogy would be the pillar. <laughs> um the uh you know, it just keeps things in a sort of a a more, you know, nimble state, whereas, um, you know, we really focus on and our measurements have to date focused on what it how mineralized is the bone? What is the aerial density of the bone? Um, So it's definitely, you know, not something that's easily measured with the um, techniques that we have now. but, but there is, you know, certainly some animal data about why this sort of bounciness uh, could be achieved.
0: That's, that's fascinating and makes a lot of sense, like that the quality of the bone would count in, in, in ways like that, too. Um, you know, I, I heard from a handful of, of, of our members and people in the, in the community that that they're they're actually sort of blindsided by this diagnosis of osteopenia, right? They'll go in just for a DEXA and they'll just be like, Oh, I'm sure everything's fine, and then they'll get this diagnosis and just feel like their world has kind of been turned upside down by it. And I'm wondering how often you see that. And also, like, does that mean as soon as you get that diagnosis, are you on a sliding board that takes you to osteoporosis, or can you just like live in that state? I mean, I'm hearing from you that you don't ne- that, that that's not necessarily just a shoot and a ladder right down to osteoporosis, but you can stay there and maybe even get yourself back to a a healthier skeletal space.
1: Yeah, I think the, the devil's in the details there a little bit, you know, it depends on, so, you know, it's a spectrum. And when you get a bone density test, they're giving you a score, which is essentially a standard deviation if anybody had to take statistics out there, where you're comparing the sort of the average number. So zero, if you got a score of zero, that would be average anything in the positive means better than average and anything in the negative means lower than average. And so, you know, when you get to a certain number, they call it low bone density. And when you get to another certain number, then it's, you know, kind of sneaks into the osteoporosis category and what to, just to make it extra confusing, there's other things that factor into what we call stuff. So, you know, if you have, um, you know, if you have, um, fractures, for example, and which fracture and what kind of fracture all of those things play a role into how we decide to manage somebody's numbers. So just like in anything in musculoskeletal health, you know, we're not treating your imaging, we're treating the patient. And so the same thing goes for osteoporosis and low bone density care. We wanna know what kind of fractures you have. But are there any ongoing um, risks or secondary issues that could be uh, impacting your bones? That we, need, that we need to take into account. For example, somebody on a medication that is known to have negative impact on the bones, that's gonna factor into how we approach the patient, their diagnosis and their treatment options. So um, I think I went really off on your original question, but yeah, so that, that diagnosis is not necessarily like a, a death sentence or, a, or, or meaning that somebody is for sure gonna get osteoporosis because all those factors play a role as well. Um, and I'll let Lanny speak to a little bit more on, you know, can we reverse it and what way? I will speak to one aspect of that, and that is in the younger athlete, with perhaps something like the female athlete triad um, or the male athlete triad. Um, on if you kind of catch that early and you address the nutritional issue or whatever it may be, that's usually it's a nutritional issue. And you can sort of, again, to use the phrase, nip it in the bud, that, that you can reverse it, but after a certain length of time, you can't. So somebody with a prolonged um, amenorrhea, you know, not getting their period, you, the evidence is that you, you can't really reverse that. Um, But there are situations and, and certain medical conditions as well, where um, you can reverse it to some degree, but I'll let Lainey speak a little bit more on sort of where we do and don't have control over
2: that. And So a big thing is that there has been a movement away from using the term osteopenia to calling it low bone density, because that's a huge area under the bell curve, right? And that's from a standard deviation of between minus one and minus 2.5 in that low bone density range. And some of those people are just fine. And some of those people are not just fine. Um, So it's sort of moving away from pathologizing, what in some people is just a normal thing. You know, I always tell my patients, I'm lower than expected range for age for height, because I'm short, Um, but that's okay. Um, So we use when patients are in the low bone density range, and I'm talking about postmenopausal patients, we use something that's called the FRAX, which is a fracture risk calculator. And that tells you, is this patient somebody who meets the threshold for treatment? Is this somebody who does not meet the threshold for treatment? um and and age is such a huge factor in this you know having a bone a t-score of minus 1.5 when you're 50 is not such a big deal necessarily having it when you're 75 is a much bigger deal so the how fracture risk changes with age is also incredibly important and we have to you know act our age as well uh when we're thinking about how worried we should be or or how upset we should be um and Uh, So in that, so aside from using the fracts, the other way that we, um, and Marcy spoke to this a bit, is we talk about fracture history. Like, it doesn't matter what your bone density is if you fell and broke your hip. Uh, That's osteoporosis by definition. It would be like saying, oh, I had a good-looking, you know, uh, I had a good-looking angioplasty, but I had a heart attack, right? Once you have the fracture, that's the heart attack. Um, and and it, there are, you know, various criteria for different fractures in terms of the clinical diagnosis of osteoporosis.
1: So
2: again, we just as Marcy said, we treat the patient, not the imaging. The imaging helps us to predict who may need treatment and what their risk of fracture, and it helps us to follow the efficacy of their treatment um, over time. But it doesn't necessarily, you know, you know, pardon the expression. Make or break the whole situation uh, for the patient. Um, You know, there are both hormone therapy and selective estrogen receptor modulators are approved for prevention of osteoporosis. Um, But again, you know, there oftentimes need to be other compelling reasons to take a medication for something, for a condition that, you know, may or may not be uh, meaningful. Um, And you just follow people over time, and at a certain point, You know people may cross the rubicon into osteoporosis um but when before that we modify sort of lifestyle things similar to how we would treat somebody who had pre-diabetes for example um you're not going to throw somebody who has pre-diabetes onto you know heavy duty medication but you are going to attend to their diet and exercise
0: great and and can you improve bone mineral density at any at at, at a once someone is in the menopause transition, can they, can they make, I'm seeing a no in in your faces, the audience can't see. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you
2: you can, if you are, if you're vitamin D deficient and you replete the vitamin D, sometimes you'll have remineralization of bone. If you um, have hyperparathyroidism and you remove the parathyroid, uh, you can have remineralization of bone. But, you know, meaningful big, I'm gonna cure my osteopenia osteoporosis by, having more calcium and exercising, not really.
1: Yeah, I always tell patients kind of a similar thing that you might be able to slow the progression. Um, And and there are certain ways beyond just affecting the number on the bone density test that can minimize your risk of fracture, like working on um, your strength training and working on balance and things like that. Because I always say it's really hard to break your hip if you don't fall. Um, so, you know, there are other things that, that you can do, even if the number doesn't change, um, that can be still helpful in preventing the the consequences of the osteoporosis, but yes, it's pretty hard unless there's a specific condition that's impacting the bones that you can change. It's pretty hard to reverse or normalize, um, low bone density.
0: So then let's move into some of the interventions to keep our skeleton strong, right? To, to keep this, to prevent some of the sliding slow, you know, as you said, um, exercise seems to be like a good place to start. You know, the, the American College of Sports Medicine recommends weight bearing endurance and plyometric exercise three to five times a week, resistance exercise of moderate to high loading two to three times per week. Um, you know, I don't think that women fully appreciate how important variety is for bone health. And I'd really like to speak to that. Can you, can you speak to the importance of both impact and gravitational force activity, like whether that be running or walking and also non-impact muscle force activity, like weightlifting, swimming and that kind of thing and how they're each important.
2: I just want to add one more thing. The osteoporosis to fit to fracture guidelines say to do balance every day.
0: So balance every day. (laughs)
2: Balance every day is an everyday proposition.
1: And that can be something as simple as, you know, standing on one leg while you're brushing your teeth.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah.
1: And then there are other sort of forms of exercise that are a little bit more specific to that, like Tai Chi and Yoga are good examples. Um, So I'll take a stab at your um, questions and try to keep this under um, two hours to answer. (laughs) Um, Because this is yeah, I could keep going and going and going. Um, So what we do know is that the younger you start, the better it is. And there seems to be some really critical time points in life um, in kind of around puberty and, you know, before, during and after puberty, where there seems to be potentially lifelong benefits from what you're doing in terms of activity, which is sorry, I'm going to put on my women's sports medicine center um, medical director hat for a second, which is why it's so important that we keep our women and girls in sports, um, women and uh, girls drop out of sports, um, twice as much as boys by the age of 14. So just trying to, um, you know, keep, keep her in the game, keep, keep girls staying active and participating. And and there's so many reasons why that happens, but um, that's something that's really important for a variety of reasons, but, and specifically to this, it's for the bones. Um, The other thing is that we do know that multi-directional loading seems to be better for the bones than unidirectional loading. And what I mean by that is something like, so if you look at all of the sports and you kind of give them a grade or you sort of list them in order, Something like basketball, which was my sport, yay, that was a good choice for bones, um, is really good because of the multi-directional impact that that has. Whereas something like running, you would think, oh my gosh, that's so much pounding. But um, but it's not, it, though it's still good for the bones, it doesn't seem to be quite as good as the other stuff. And then it also can be kind of specific to the body part. So for example, um, the lumbar spine tends to be the score that's lowest in our um in our premenopausal athletes, and and particularly our runners. And um, the theory is that the benefit of the loading of the bone doesn't really get to the lumbar spine so much as it does to like the hips. And so any of the negative stuff that might come from running, and and specifically, it's not eating enough for the running, the running's not the problem. It's what happens sometimes in runners that's the problem. Um, It just doesn't seem to have as much protective effect for the lumbar spine. So that's not to say that running can't be good for your bones. It's just you still have to make sure you're maintaining um, good nutrition. And it would be also beneficial to consider some other cross training, some other variety of sports um, that could be helpful for the bones as well. Um, People talk about swimming um, as another thing where it's like, well, that's not very, that's not really helpful for the bones. And yes, it's true that you're not getting, the load bearing. And if you just look at like a group of swimmers versus a group of basketball players, generally the basketball players tend to have higher bone density, um, because of the weight bearing nature of their sport. That being said, there's a lot of strength benefits from swimming and even just working on strength training and the resistance of the muscles kind of pulling on the bones that also benefits the bones. So there is no exercise that's inherently not worth, that's not worthwhile to do for bone health, but there are some that seem to be a little bit better than others. Um, I think that was pretty short for me, but yeah, so timing is really important, direction is important, um, but the strength training is also valuable because not only does it strengthen the muscles that help prevent you falling, but even just the pulling of the muscles against the bone also can improve things.
2: And I think, you know, patients come to me and they'll say, oh, I swim, but that's bad. Just because something isn't good necessarily or the best doesn't mean it's bad.
0: Um, you know, I tell I'm a people, cyclist and I appreciate you saying that. Yeah,
2: <laughs> like I, I, you know, I tell I want people to get sweaty. And if that means that you are my Italian patients who takes who takes Israeli folk dancing. Right. Um, you know, whatever it is that you love to do do it, if that's what's going to get you out of the house, you know, you know, less so for the athletes, more so for the just general population. I think that's really important to just know that you're doing it. And that there is this variety that you are challenging yourself. And I tell everyone just the same way that like, your brain hurts in math class when you're learning. Um, You know, you want every exercise class should feel like the first one, it should not be, you know, but you know, you've taken a class a million times, and you're like, uh huh. Uh huh. You know, it, it, oh, you should always make it harder, and that's even in older patients. Like they, you have to keep pushing the envelope uh, within the, you know, the range of safety and capability. But it should never feel easy. It should every class, every time, like the first time.
1: Yeah, and I think that's important too for our older patients in particular. That it's one. It's never too late to start um, to start something. And number two, it, it, there's so much more of it. If you don't, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. That happens as we get older. It's harder to maintain that the strengthening. Whereas, you know, when you're 20, if you like, don't go to the gym for a month, you know, when you go back, you haven't lost as much as you do when you're at 70. So I always encourage my older patients, even if it's not like your greatest week, just do something to kind of help maintain so that it's not a stop and start situation. And one other comment that sometimes adds into this, that sometimes affects this recommendation is somebody who already has low bone density, and they have a lot of risk of getting stress fractures. Mm. So in that scenario, even though, you know, there are certain sports and impact things and high impact stuff that might be good for the bones in one way. I also am aware that they are at a higher risk of getting a bone stress injury. And so there may be modifications we make that, that may not benefit the bone as much, but we're trying to protect the patient from getting an injury. And so there may be something that we recommend, um, they change because they're at high risk of getting injuries and they've proven that over time.
0: Well, we definitely have some of those women. I'd like to hear a little bit about that. You know, we definitely have Uh, distance runners, lifelong runners um, who have had stress reactions, stress fractures, you know, what, what is the recommendation for them? And I'm hoping you don't say you can't run anymore.
1: I, I, I very rarely have to make that as a blanket statement. And I really try not to because there's so many wonderful values of running. And I always try to factor in, um, you know, the mental well being, the mental health and well being of patients. And if they love to run and that, and running seems like a good and healthy thing for them, trying to figure out how we might make adjustments moving forward to minimize that risk. Um, and for some patients, it's not worth it. They get so sick of the stop and start that they make that decision on their own. Um, you know, sometimes it's switching to something that involves less running and more of other things, or just adding other things in to sort of help with injury prevention like strength training, but a lot of like cross training. So like one of the examples, sometimes you'll hear this in like the running world is like somebody was a runner, they kept getting injuries, they switched to triathlons, right? So that's sometimes a transition that people make because it, it it they'll mix up their the variety of their exercise program, maybe healthier for them in an injury prevention standpoint, that recommendation is not always blanket, right? Like there's still plenty of injuries you can get in, um, in, in triathlons, but that's an example of something that where somebody might make an adjustment because of the injuries that they're getting from running. But a lot of times it's adjusting perhaps the training regimen. It may be you know, doing changes in a much slower fashion. It may be adding in strength training and cross training, but a lot of times also it may involve adjusting their training schedule. So somebody who runs seven days a week and is getting injuries, that might be somebody where I say, look, I think we need to cut your running days down, your volume, your mileage, give your body more recovery time because your bones need recovery time. That's what stress fractures are, is that that breaking up, the building up and breaking down gets that, that cycle gets imbalanced and out of whack. And that's how the stress injuries happen in the first place. So a lot of times we can prevent the injuries, even in patients who have osteoporosis, or low bone density who want to keep running, we can usually do some things to try to prevent that. It's rare that I just
2: say, you really shouldn't be doing this um, at all. And the love of sport is such an excellent motivator. Um, you know, Marcy and I share many patients who they, running is their passion and their love. And they have, you know, gotten into situations, whether primarily because of underfueling, um, that they're that they that they understand that they're going to have to give up the running or the body habitus that they think they needed to have to run, but it really is not working out for them. And that is an incredible motivator. Um, that love of sport and the love of, of, of the participation and the and the, you know, the social network around a sport. Um, is you know we will leverage that uh to to have people heal themselves uh in terms of you know you know before we give medication before we, we think of pharmacotherapy we always think you know let's think about the nutrition let's think about the training patterns um and and the and the love of sport is a is a great motivator that i'm you know when i have patients who have eating disorders in in the absence of a sport, there is much less for them. It's, they they have they don't have much to give up, but the eating disorder. But when it's in combination with a sport, you know, sometimes that is enough of a motivation to get them out of that disordered eating.
0: Yeah, for sure. And we'll we'll talk about nutrition and low energy availability and and all that the ramifications of that in in a second. Um, be, before I leave this, I, I do. This is a curiosity I've always had. like my understanding is that that what we're talking about like bone and correct me if I'm wrong, bone remodeling seems to be site specific, right? like like you're working whatever area of if I'm working on my arms that that's going to be my humorous like those bones are going to benefit, right? Why are hips so why are hips such such um seemingly a high risk area when they seem to be loading are they're, they're under load all the time. I like, I don't understand like why our hips are so vulnerable to um, fracture in this condition.
2: It, well, the hip fractures, I mean, aside from the sort of stress reactions uh, that younger people get, hip fractures are actually a late manifestation of osteoporosis. Okay. Um, and in my opinion, they should never happen because you should have been identified prior to that. So women start to get wrist fractures, sort of in their 50s, spine fractures, which is far and away the most, uh, you know, in the numbers game, the most fractures are are vertebral um, and start in the 60s. And you start to see hip fractures, late 60s, 70s, and men are shifted age wise a little bit. Um, You know, that is, that's not the canary in the coal mine. That's, that's the the explosion. Yeah. So. (laughs)
0: So let's talk about spine health specifically then, because that sort of segues into that. You know, we do talk about the need for heavy lifting. A lot of people in my audience are into lifting heavy shit. They go to CrossFit. They're all about it. Um, When are there concerns about loading that spine, you know, about doing a back squat, about doing a front squat? Like, is that, when is that productive? And when is it maybe you're concerned about it? I
1: mean, I don't, I'm not necessarily, well, I'm not concerned about the weightlifting necessarily having a negative impact on the bone density of the spine. Um, Lainey, you can please feel free to disagree or chime in. But, you know, obviously there's other back issues that can happen from doing that heavy lifting. And and one sort of side comment is um, if you have arthritis in your low back, it gives you an artificially higher score than you may have in the lumbar spine. So you'll sometimes you'll see on the reports where they'll sort of either toss out levels completely in the calculation because of the arthritis there, um, or sometimes we'll look at somebody's lumbar spine and it'll be really good, and then the other scores are bad, and that oftentimes that's because they have um, arthritis at that level, um, which increases the density just because of the sclerosis or kind of thickening around an arthritic joint. Um, the one area you really really do have to be cautious is if you have osteoporosis, you can get vertebral fractures. um, And sometimes that is related to form. So um, a, a sort of classic description that I give is one I had of a patient last year, where she there was a desk, she was leaning over the desk to open kind of a stuck window. So that like kind of arching or curving of your spine forward and then doing some sort of force. The other analogy might be like bending over to pick up a box with poor form or pick up weights off of the ground. You always wanna think about if you have osteoporosis, keeping a fairly neutral position or flat surface to your spine when you're gonna go pick something up.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Do you have thoughts on that too?
2: Yeah, so it's any, what we tell people is that any, you don't wanna load the spine in a position you wouldn't want it to stay in. So <laughs> if it's flexed, if it's, you know, extremes of twisting. So you always want to, you know, engage the core, pretend like there's a string at the top of your head. I was a dancer, as you can t- probably tell. And you bend from, you lift from the knees. And you, when you're twisting with, if you have osteoporosis, when you're twisting with something heavy or holding a box, you turn to twist. You don't sort of throw something that heavy and twist. And it doesn't mean that you can't do sun salutations or what
0: have you. It just means
2: that you don't want
0: to do that in a resisted fashion uh, if you have osteoporosis. Got it. And is this the kind of information, you know, people people will ask like, okay, I have low low bone mineral density. What are my restrictions? Or I just got diagnosed with osteoporosis. What are my restrictions? Like, is that is that a one-on-one thing that they need to discuss with their um, healthcare provider? Are there guidelines that are more global than that.
2: So osteoporosis Canada, and I'm Canadian, they have a fantastic resource and website um, to fit to fracture. Um, and I oftentimes use, uh, you know, their. I just think it's an excellent platform and, and well-researched and well done. And that's super helpful.
0: So let's, let's move in. Cause we, we have referenced it many times and it, it we've, definitely has a lot to talk about here with nutrition. Um, before we get into micronutrients, you both have mentioned low energy availability numerous times. And I think that that merits discussion because I don't think women think about that when they think about their bone health. So where, where does energy availability come into this, um, this equation when we talk about building bone?
1: Uh, I'll let you start, but then I'll chime in.
2: Uh, you know, so fueling for activity, uh, if, if, uh, if someone is burning more calories than they're taking in and, you know, and, and sometimes when you're just training for a marathon, for example, that's a lot, that's more than people are comfortable eating. Uh, sometimes it can be challenging, especially if you had a, a lot of food restrictions, etc. And so basically what happens is, is it's, you know, multi-system, but the, you know, the, uh, HPO axis shuts down. So you stop ovulating, menstruating, or it gets lighter. You're, you're doing it less. We call it oligomenorrhea. There's amenorrhea, there's oligomenorrhea. Um, and then that has a negative impact on the bone. Uh, you know, the, the lack of nutrients, calories, protein, which is like the ugly stepsister of bone that we don't talk about as much that we, that we probably should, uh, also has a negative impact on either the acquisition or the maintenance of the bone. Um, And then you're basically in a catabolic state Um, and it's just a, a, it's a perfect storm without that, that underpinning. And, you know, that really, we would always talk about the triad as, you know, disordered eating, menstrual irregularities uh, and, and low bone mass propensity to fracture, but really it's the food that is, you know, the, you know, the, the wizard behind the curtain of all of it. Um, and you know, there's a medication we use for uh, osteoporosis that grows bone. It's called Forteo. So we will say to the patients and among ourselves, you need food Teo, not Forteo, um, because in the absence of those calories, the medications won't, certainly won't work. Um, but the whole system is, is aberrant in the absence of adequate calories.
0: So that's. And with m- my audience, they might not have one of those red flags, uh, right. pun intended. They might yes, not have. Yes a missing period right. or more. Right, right. Um, you know,
2: so what do I tell my patients who are in the post-menopause? If you start to see, you know, you're at a healthy weight and it starts to drift down while you're tra- while you're training. Um, you know, if you lose uh, 10 pounds, you're losing bone. Uh, it's one of the cruelties of life after 40. When we lose weight, we lose bone. Um, if you start to see that you're training, is, that you're not training to the level that that you thought you could or should be, that you're starting to slow down, um, you know, that can be another clue. Uh, you know, there are obviously sort of you know laboratory studies and and bone density studies, but if you're just sort of a the average person not connecting with with um, with a healthcare care provider necessarily while you're training, um, you know, those are the the things that are kind of the red flags that that you. That-
1: yeah, and I often use the term you know fueling. So if, and, and I think that works well, I mean, if we think of our bodies as machines, like you need fuel to run the machine. And so you need the fuel for healing. You need the fuel for exercise. And when you don't, like Lanny said, it, it's not the exercise. It's really the balance between the nutrition and the exercise that's valuable for the bones. Um, and, and when that, when that's not in good balance, that's when we get into trouble and our bones take the hit. So in our, in the younger people, yes, we might see the periods go away, but even in the younger population, you don't have to lose your period to necessarily be in low energy availability. And then of course, our patients who are on birth control pills, so I'm like, I'm getting a period every month. I'm like, well, yeah, it's not really a period <laughs> yeah. per se. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Most and then people
0: don't know that though. That's, yeah,
1: right. That's really important to know like, well, that's not exactly the same thing or vice versa. I'm not getting my period because I have a Marina IUD. And so what I usually tell people is, look, when you're on birth control, like all like that, that tool is not there in our toolbox to monitor whether you're in good energy balance. So um, if you want to be on the birth control, great, fine, totally fine. However, we just need to be extra cautious that we're trying to evaluate what, what that in and out is and whether that's in good balance or not.
0: Excellent. So calcium is super confusing. Um, <laughs> you know we've heard the, the 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 gospel of calcium for decades, but when you look in the research, you're like, hmm, you know and and then you see stats like Americans have among the highest calcium intake in the world, along with one of the highest rates of osteoporosis so mm. what is what is what should women here know about calcium
1: i'll I'll let Lanny talk a lot more about it because I know she she talks about it a lot too but you know, calcium is one of those things where I tell people you, you need enough of it, but you don't need to like overdo it. So, you know, there's sort of a certain range and, and always, I think if you can get the calcium through your diet, as opposed to a supplement, generally speaking, that's better, but this is definitely a scenario where more or exceeding is not better. And there can be implications, um, including something like a kidney stone, if you're, if you're overdoing it with the calcium and yeah, there's a lot of, um, that's interesting that we have, I think there, I think we're talking about two different populations a little bit Mm -hmm. on the, the, the dairy intake and the osteoporosis, because we also have a ton of obesity in our country and those aren't necessarily the same people as the ones that are getting osteoporosis, not always, but I think we're talking about a couple different types of population.
0: Gotcha.
2: I totally I think the amount of calcium taken in for the country may be high but it is not distributed evenly. Um, oh sir. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So the and cal, it it's it's they've made calcium much more complicated than it needs to be. You know, to Marcy's point, it's a threshold nutrient. You need enough, not too much. Any that you're not getting from your diet, guess where it's going to come from? Your bio, your body's always going to prioritize muscle function, blood clotting and and uh cardiac contractility over your skeleton the skeleton is like you know not from an evolutionary perspective not a lot of priority there so it will mobilize from the skeleton to take the calcium that you need to keep the other you know more important organs running Um, so if you're not getting enough calcium in your diet and most people don't like post-menopause that's three or four good servings of dairy a day Um, and So, you know, you're like having a yogurt in the morning, you're having cheese on your salad, you're having a glass of milk before you go to bed. Um, And most people don't do that. So whatever is lacking in that 1200 milligrams per day, you need to make up in supplementation. Um, It is not 1200 milligrams of supplementation on top of that. Um, And that is, so I have to say like every patient that comes to see me for the first time, they are either over supplementing or under supplementing (laughs) calcium. (laughs) almost inevitably and it's an yes um and it's you just need that those extra you know two seconds of conversation of this is what your total needs are and this is how you're going to get it um you know the other thing that can be confusing is you look online and you see content of calcium in various you know sort of non-dairy sources Mm -hmm. um the way that we measure calcium in a food is we ash the food and then measure the molecules of calcium that are left behind but how much when you're having collard greens or bok choy how much calcium actually gets absorbed with all the oxalates and the fiber how bioavailable is that calcium probably not that much Um, you know when you look at the blue zones the places where people live the longest um, most of those areas have fermented milk products as a big part of their diet, yogurt, kefir. Um, uh, so that's really, you know, I you always try to go to the, to the farm, not the pharmacy, <laughs> but if you have to go to the pharmacy, then, you know, it should be a, a more nuanced conversation that is, yeah, I, I take a dietary history on everything.
1: I love that. I'm stealing that. <laughs> I
2: love, love that too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that too.
2: Don't so, tell
0: people to uh, chew, th- chew their vitamins, don't swallow them. Excellent. Well, talking about like, let's take to the other, the sister ingredient, vitamin D, and then any other micronutrients that you think that women um, typically might be missing in this demographic for good bone health.
2: Marcy, you want to be? either of you?
1: Yeah, the vitamin D um, uh, uh, is a little bit different because it's not. Quite so easy to get completely just in your diet. And it's a little bit more, um, you know, has like a genetic role. So that's something that I have a pretty low threshold of checking in my patients and seeing if they're low or not. And then supplementing. So that is one where I feel like I'm I'm more likely to suggest supplementation or they're more likely to need supplementation, whereas there are some dietary sources, but not like amazing. And then the other obvious like big source for vitamin D is the sun. And this is where Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, we've sort of shifted over the years. Like Lenny was talking about the sunning um, that we, that we used to do the downside of us being really good about sunscreen and staying out of the sun is that we may not get as much vitamin D. So being out, like particularly in the middle of the day without any sunscreen on, even for like 10 minutes can be helpful. And so that's why you see a little bit of a seasonal effect to vitamin D that you're more likely to have adequate D
2: when it's summer. And yeah. more likely when you're 25, because as we age, that, that is not that, uh, we're not as good at, at getting our vitamin D from the sun aging skin.
0: Not as good uh, at synthesizing yeah. it. So
2: yeah. You know, again, go back to evolution. We evolved to be running around naked in Africa we live clothed in New York city. It's anyone I think over the 34th parallel, um, you know, most of the year is not gonna get enough D from the sun. And, you know, if you're, I'm from Canada, if you're from Scandinavia, there are very sort of strict rules about, you know, D being added to all sources of dairy, what the recommendations are, you know, but here in the States we have Maine, we have Florida. Um, So standardization is more difficult, but basically, um, you know, certainly people in the Northeast, definitely in the winter, almost everybody needs uh, to supplement with vitamin D. Um, and, you know, again, I have a, I, I check it in all of my patients because again, that's a very a simple uh, and there, there's some argument about whether 20 is the threshold or 30 or 40, um, which is academic and will, I, you know, I'm sure that it will change 47 more times before I retire. Um, but, it's, <laughs> but it, there, you know, we definitely, that is something that we all need to supplement definitely, you no know, October to March for sure.
1: Yeah. Also. I, um, I also have a really low threshold of, of checking it in my patients and, um, and we actually did as just kind of a side note about vitamin D is beyond the bones. There really seems to be a lot of other systems, um, including a lot of other things in the musculoskeletal system beside the bones that it can impact. And there's still, I think a lot we need to learn in that area, but we did a study in the women's sports medicine center where we kind of took like most patients that came into our office and then we divided them into categories based on what they were presenting with. And, um, you know, took, took out the people that were already on vitamin D and some other things, but we kind of checked all comers with their vitamin D level and then looked at the trends. And we actually found that people who came in with like acute ligament injuries were much, were the mm. highest group in our study to have low vitamin D and bone stress injuries was actually kind of on the low end, which was interesting, but, um, but still with like a super high number. So we had like Half of the patients practically that came in with ligament injuries had low vitamin D, but still, like 30 something percent of our patients um, with a bone stress injury had low vitamin D. So, uh, just you know, kind of a side note to, about vitamin D is it does seem to have other implications in sports and musculoskeletal health that I think we don't
2: fully understand gotcha and and general health as well. There are some, you know, the uh, MS, for example, the further you get from the equator, the higher the incidence of MS. So that's, you know, been, uh, you know, suggested as a, as a role, you know, playing a role in certain autoimmune disorders and infectious disorders. There's good data about vitamin D repletion uh, being helpful uh, to prevent uh, pneumonia. Um, And there's also, you know, data that is accumulating, um, with respect to COVID that is still yet, uh, you know, right. yet fully delineated, but there's, there's definitely smoke, um, uh, for vitamin D and many things aside from musculoskeletal issues.
0: Excellent. Do you feel like that if you are eating a healthy, otherwise well-rounded diet covers like what you should be considering with your nutrition, number one, eating enough for your bone health?
2: The only other things that there's actually like when patients come to me, I always have them bring a bag of everything that they're taking and when they have like a shopping bag full of supplements, it it's so it, it's unnecessary and the supplement companies do not have the um, this, they're not uh, subjected to the same rigor. That the you know big Vita uh, does not have to do as much or prove as much as big pharma, and it is also a billion dollar industry. You have to be suspicious of everything, um, and so the only you know things that are that we supplement in patients um, beyond the calcium and vitamin D is you know B twelve if you're a vegan if you're deficient. You know some people need magnesium because it helps uh, with bowel function. Sometimes they, people use it for sleep or migraine prevention, but you know not specifically for bones maybe if you're on a proton pump inhibitor there's some evidence that magnesium may help but that's really it
0: that's good to hear yeah Yeah. and and let's let's talk big pharma a bit because at what point does the pharmaceutical intervention come in i mean you hear about biphosphonates and you know fosamax was a big one that everyone heard about for a while uh, menopausal hormone therapy is something that, that people talk about for women who are particularly at risk for osteoporosis. When does that come into the conversation?
1: Um, sorry. I'll let Lani take most of this because she does this more in her practice. I'll just make, you know, one comment to just reiterate what we did before, because again, we don't have three hours to talk about, um, osteoporosis <laughs> pharmaceuticals, but you know, right. again, it's a, it's a matter of treating the patient. And in addition to all those other factors we talked about, sometimes it has to do with the trend too. So there may be a patient that's kind of borderline or hesitant and, and it we, it's the kind of thing where we just sort of can watch it a little bit over time depending on how risky the situation is and always revisit that conversation. And there's so many more options than we used to have. It used to be like just bisphosphonates that was, that was it. Um, And, and that was something, so for like my population, we don't use those as much in the younger people because of the potential effects on the developing, on a developing fetus, but there's so many more options that we have now than we used to. And there's so much fear out there in general about medications that are usually unwarranted. And so just having like taking the time to sort of provide education and talking it through with the patient's. Cause there seems to be, unlike a lot of medications, there's this real like fear with a lot of the medications for osteoporosis. Like, oh, I'm gonna have jaw osteonecrosis or these atypical femur fractures, which are actually incredibly rare compared to your risk of getting a fracture just from the osteoporosis. All right, I'll let Lenny take it away.
2: That was fantastic. Um, you know, we treat when the patient has osteoporosis. Of course, if there's a patient who's young and hesitant like, I, I want to wait, I want to see how I do. Lifestyle wise, I'll just follow them more closely, like do a bone density every year, as opposed to every two if they were on treatment. But once you have osteoporosis, established osteoporosis, and whether that's by clinical criteria, FRAX criteria, or bone density criteria, we treat. We recommend that people treat. And we do have a lot of options, but you know, we also can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The bisphosphonates are fantastic drugs that have been around a long time. We know what they do, we know what they don't do. Um, I find it very disturbing, interesting, you know, let's find the word. I was actually doing my Women's Health Fellowship when the Women's Health Initiative broke. And I was doing my uh, metabolic bone fellowship when the Fosamax fracture panic started. So I never do a fellowship with me. I'm always in the wrong place. (laughs) Uh, um, but, But to that point, I think so many other drugs that we use, you know, Without hesitation or thinking, that have never uh, been painted with the scarlet A, um, like these drugs. And isn't it interesting that these are drugs that are provided to women uh, to improve their health and 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 certainly in the case of hormone therapy, well being. Um, you know, it, it it makes you wonder. You never somehow the the stories about people with the you know four hour erection after. Uh, after (laughs) Cialis, where they have to have, you know, blood withdrawn from their penis. That doesn't make it into the New York times, but the atypical fractures does. And I find it really disheartening. Um, and, and a great many women have suffered unnecessarily through very symptomatic menopause and lost years of treatment of their bone density unnecessarily by being made, uh, terrified of medications that don't get approved unless they do what they're supposed to do. You know, nothing is 100% safe. We know that the, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, that was written before evidence-based medicine. There is always, uh, there are always rare, chances of rare side effects uh, of everything that we do. Nothing is perfect, um, but on balance, treating this condition is so, first of all, not not difficult nor unpleasant when it when you're treated appropriately, um, and and so much more effective. Uh, you know the the benefits so far outweigh the risks that it's really just it's 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 devastating to me because when I when I see somebody you know walking you know pushing a a cart uh, around Manhattan and they're and they're completely bent over like this, I to me that's just something that should never have happened in
0: in today's world. I really appreciate hearing that. I appreciate hearing all of that. We we talk about all of these things a lot on the show, as far as gender, uh, gender goes. And it's, you know, it, it's, you know, the term Dowager's hump is terrible for on so many levels. <laughs> but um, it is, it is good to hear that that is, if if your mom had that, that curved spine and hump, that is not your destiny. No,
2: you, osteoporosis is a propensity. It's not a destiny. So when you treat osteoporosis, you know, just the same way that, you know, if your dad died, God forbid of a heart attack at age 50, that shouldn't happen nowadays. We have amazing medications and interventions that, that shouldn't be the case. So too, your your mother having the quote unquote dowage huh? um, uh, or something, or breaking a hip and having to, to go into assisted living at 75, 78, that also should
0: not happen. Excellent. Are there any um, issues that you feel like women should should know that they that they don't know, in your estimation, or that they are not aware enough of, as far as keeping their skeleton strong at, especially at this point? You know, we're talking about people who can't go back in time; they are where they are. Yeah. Um, anything that that we haven't talked about, that you think that would be beneficial? Two things:
2: alcohol is not your friend. Hmm. Limit alcohol. Alcohol is so two glasses of wine a day, which really doesn't seem like that much, especially during pandemic times, increases your risk of breast cancer more than hormone therapy in the Women's Health Initiative. Um, So that's kind of a core shaker for a lot of people. Um, It is also toxic uh, to the skeletons, toxic to your osteoblasts. So I tell everyone to cut back on the alcohol, your brain, your breast, your bone and your belly will thank you. the other thing is that strontium is like a strontium salt is sort of the supplement du jour and it's been added to a lot of um sort of bone bone preparations. It is not appropriate. Nobody should be using it. It has a higher molecular weight than calcium. It makes bones look brighter, but not necessarily stronger. Um, and it uh you know this artificial uh elevation can persist for up to 10 years after you even after you stop taking it. Um there was a a pharmaceutical uh, grade strontium that did not pass semester at the FDA for that very reason. It was approved in Canada, approved in Europe, and has since been taken on the market for uh, cardiovascular concerns, health safety concerns. But Big Vita is still allowed to put strontium salts into their products with zero data uh, and zero
0: monitoring. So if you're taking
2: something with strontium, throw it
0: out. Excellent. Excellent advice. And is there anything people used to talk about too much protein or soda leaching from your bones? Any like are there dietary things that, that women should be concerned about that actually do quote unquote leach from their bones? I, mean, I, I think the alcohol thing is a great point in how it disrupts that you know the, the remodeling process but any of those other things that we've long heard about like colas and it's dark colas yeah so their recommendation is no more than two
2: per week of a dark cola you know um seltzer's fine uh you know we all have our vices as i drink my friday diet coke today <laughs> um you know I, that's the recommendation is two per week but again every patient you have to sort of nuance that you know if your joy is to have uh you know a glass of wine when you come home at the end of the day okay so you have to be better in some other areas um but so the recommendation is is two is no more than two dark colas per week
0: um and um, pardon me you mentioned one other
2: thing uh
0: so I, I believe that protein used to get some sort of a bad rap. With
2: protein, every you know, everything is like Goldilocks, right? Too much protein um, is not good. Uh, it can actually, uh, you know, change the. It can acidify the urine in such a way that uh, it increases the propensity for stones, and it can also cause calcium losses through the urine. Um, but too little protein is is more often what I see um, in my patients. Whether that's because they're uh, you know, they have a, a, you know, they're, they're vegan, they're vegetarian. They're sort of what we call orthorexic where people are very focused on quote unquote eating clean, but it's, you know, it's, it's very nutritionally deficient. And then I have my tea and toast crew who are older, um, who don't, who don't get a protein source at most meal. Um, you know, your, your serving sizes, you have them with you all the time. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that your plates, so if you hold out the flat of your hands, you know, your plate should have two hands worth of vegetables, you know, one hand worth of starch, a fist of protein, um, you know, nuts should be, you know, a handful, a literal handful, and you're, you know, a thimbleful of, of fats. So, you know, we, we have our, we don't need a, to bring a scale to the restaurant. We should just know what our plate should look like. We have our guides right here.
0: Right, right. And is that too much protein? Just, I, I want to drive that home a little bit just because our audience is, um, you know, pretty protein conscious because they are less, you know, muscle protein synthesis becomes harder with the menopause transition. And, you know, they are exercising a lot. And like you said, a lot of times they're they're on that lower end. Is it, is that a very high bar that you're talking about as far as being uh, problematic for skeletal? It is a very high bar.
2: Marcy, I don't know if you have a more... Um specific recommendation with
1: regards to protein? I think, you know, I mean, the, the, the short answer is, you know, everything in moderation, right? Like how many times have we said that in our lives, but you know, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of not cutting things out. Um, I think that is a generally not necessary and is a bit of a slippery slope. So I think as long as there's good balance, you're okay. Um, so I don't think there's like a specific number that I'm aware of for protein, but generally speaking, if you're following a balanced, healthy diet, you won't be overdoing or underdoing something. Okay. That's fair.
0: Well, I appreciate both of your, both of your time and expertise and, uh, helping, helping women understand a little bit more about maintaining their skeletal health at this time of life. because. Uh, it, it is very encouraging to hear that, that some of the things that, that you might think are your destiny or not, you know, don't have to be. And that just because you've gotten a diagnosis of low bone density, that that doesn't, um, it doesn't put you're not, it doesn't put you in a bubble. You
2: don't need to wrap yourself in
0: bubble wrap. <laughs> you don't need to bubble wrap. <laughs> okay. That's our show. Join me next week when we talk about something entirely different. Dragon Boat Racing. Yes, I said Dragon Boat Racing with two completely infectious women. Dragon Boat Racing coach, Connie Flisaurus, and Dragon Boat Racing newbie, Chris Head. Connie started a team called Power Surge because they aren't hot flashes, they're power surges for women 40 plus, and Chris is part of the Dragon Divas, a team of breast cancer survivors who race dragon boats. I freaking loved their stories. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to hit play, not pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active performance minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty.